the volume. Hey, it's the sessions presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel. FanDuel has exclusive offers, boosts, and more all month long, baby. And when you win, you get paid real fast. FanDuel has lots of ways to play, like the spread, money line, over-unders, team totals, player props, and so much more. Jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. Such a cool feature. And you can combine multiple bets from the same game in a same game parlay to try out Same Game Parlay Plus. So download the FanDuel app today and start making every moment more. Disclaimer, 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG for Colorado, Iowa, Minneapolis, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 for Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org for Maryland. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York. 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on this show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, So it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. Okay, welcome to the sessions. We've got Aubrey Edwards here on the show. Just as we were queuing up, when you're like all waiting in the Zoom, waiting to get this thing up and running and giddy up. We were. We were all shooting the shit about Taco Bell. Um, I fucking love Taco Bell. I would say, hands down, it's the best of all of the fast food. So you're a vegan, so they correct, definitely, correct. you can hang there, right? What do you get? Right, and Taco Bell was one of the first actual fast food places that like actually made their stuff vegan. Like maybe not made it specific, but allowed you to tweak things to create something that was vegan. Like you can get a bean burrito with onions and some sauce and you're good to go. You get two of those and you're full. And when you're a broke college kid, that's like the best thing in the world, right? Heaven. So they've started adding more to their menu. Like They promote like Mexican pizzas without cheese and you can replace the beef with black beans and all these things. Shout out to Taco Bell. Yes. Dude, it's so good. All (laughs) of the other fast food companies had to play catch up, but Taco Bell's been doing it for years. So does Taco Bell, they don't do the impossible meat, do they? Do they just do the the bean substitute? Which as a non-vegan, is a bean substitute better than impossible meat? Where do you stand on impossible It's different. Like I love impossible because it tastes and reminds me of what beef is, but I haven't had any beef since like 2008. So for me, it's like nostalgia, right? I was vegetarian for like 12 years before I went vegan. So it's been, it's been a while. How long have you been a vegan then? I've been a vegan since 2019. It was actually right before I started at AEW. 
How hard was it transitioning from being a vegetarian into being vegan? Because that is like balls to the wall. We're in it to win it. No substitutions. How's it been? It was really hard initially because cheese is my favorite food. And I was definitely one of those like when it's late at night, and you need a snack, go to the fridge, grab a bag of cheese and just eat a handful. So like changing that whole habit was really hard. <laughs> yeah. And fake cheese is not the same. I don't feel like fake cheese substitutes the same way. It's better now than it was. Like there's a lot of progression that's happened in food science in the last five years even. So if you ate vegan cheese five years ago, yeah, it was trash. But the vegan cheese nowadays, and there's certain brands that like Violife is really good because it's coconut based, so it actually melts. Borson does a good little um, no dairy situation, and it's quite good. Yeah, those little baby bell cheeses, they actually make a non-dairy version of those now. They come in like little green rubber wrappers instead of the red. Is it the same brand or is it like a, a like a... It's the same brand. Really? That's brilliant. Yeah, I think everybody's getting in on it just because there's so much money in people doing like either Meatless Mondays or people just kind of watching their health and whatnot. I really love meat substitutes. I eat meat. I kind of eat everything. But I like even in catering, I find our like meat substitute stuff. I'm always drawn to it. I love it. There's something about the texture of it or like, I don't know. There's something just about it that I really love. I'm drawn to it. They use a lot of really quality meat-based substitutes. Like my favorite, this is just like a whole on me promoting vegan brands of stuff now, but there's... <laughs> it started Taco Bell, but now we're in the weeds. We're in it. <laughs> it it's a natural progression. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. um, there's this brand called Gardein and you could get it pretty much every grocery store in the freezer section. It's just a bag. And like their chicken strips are the absolute best. I eat them every day. And the catering at work has figured out like those brands are really good. So whenever they have like a chicken based dish, like they'll include that. Whenever they have a fish based dish, like Gardein has these awesome fish fillets. It's a really good brand. And it's like high protein still. Like obviously there's still some carbs to it, but it's, it's almost impossible to avoid carbs when you're vegan. Lita is a huge vegan. Anytime I would be traveling with her on the road, she had introduced me to a ton of great stuff. But while I was kind of, I was never, I was never like dabbling of thinking like, oh, I'm going to do this. I think I was just, I don't know. I was just checking it out. But I did this butternut squash mac and cheese, which was so good. It was incredible. And then we went to, gosh, I'm going to draw a blank on the name of, it was in Brooklyn. I think it's, she's got like a whole brand, but um, uh, it was this shiitake bacon that, and I made it at home. It blew my fucking mind. It was, it doesn't taste like bacon, but it was just like, ah, oh, so good. Yeah. Vegan bacon, they haven't figured out yet, but there's a smoky vegan tempeh that I get every week. That's real good. Anyways, well, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so you are up and at them. You are in Seattle. Of course, we know that you are West Coast, Pacific Standard Time. We're doing this at 1030 Eastern time. So it is like early rising for you. You like to get shit done early. I've always been a morning person. I think part of that came from I worked like office jobs before this. So nine to five, like you're getting up early, you're getting ready, you're driving to work, busing to work, whatever it may be. And then you have to be productive by 9 a.m. A lot of cases, because I was working management roles, I would try to get to work before other people so that I could get a handle on my day before everyone else came in and just kind of blew off wherever I was going and just like, okay, now I have to worry about this stuff. So I've always been a morning person and my husband still works in games. So he has to be up early. So kind of just makes sense. 
Like I normally recording unrestricted at 7 a.m. So this was nice because I had like an extra half hour to like fully get ready. I'm on my second cup of coffee rather than my first. You're getting a good version of Aubrey. Yeah, I'm deep in the coffee throws right now. I'm just like, get, I, Nora was sick all weekend. So I'm like kind of white knuckling. I'm like, what's happening? But the coffee it's helping. Um, management roles. That's always been a thing for you. So for you to step into AEW, rattle off what all of the roles are that you do. We see you obviously in front of the camera. We see you, you know, in the matches, refereeing. What else do you do? You wear a lot of fucking hats. I do wear a lot of hats. So yeah, I do a lot of stuff at AEW. My formal title is I'm senior project manager. And that sounds very singular, but I obviously have a lot of projects I manage. What are the projects? Game stuff to heal stuff to whatever else may come up. So as I mentioned, I'm co-host for AEW Unrestricted, official podcast, new episodes every Thursday. That's kind of what I started with when I was working the office contract side stuff. And then someone got a hold of my resume at one point and went, wait, she worked on games for like 10 years? I'm like, yeah, okay. So I'm working in AEW Games, which is our games sort of umbrella, and I'm working on a number of games for them right now that I can't quite talk about yet. And then uh, I run AEW Heels, which is our uh, female forward fan club. So we've been building sort of a community of women and female identifying wrestling fans that can come together and share in their love of wrestling, but also create these friendships that kind of are difficult to form in wrestling because... You don't have a lot of other women that you can enjoy this thing with. And there's so much gatekeeping with like, oh, you're a, you're a wrestling fan? Well, who won the main event of 1985 in whatever pay-per-view, blah, blah, blah. And if you don't <laughs> prove it, then you suddenly feel like you don't belong. And that's how a lot of women fall out of it. But it's not even just wrestling. That's in many different like categories. It's in comic books. It's in video games. It's everything that was traditionally male dominated as hobbies. But yeah, so we've been building that. And then I just do random projects that come up. So my real boring example that sounds super impressive is recently Chris Peck, who does a lot of like legal stuff for AEW. He's been building our uh, digital privacy policy, which has to be GDPR compliant. So we have to account for like certain rules in the UK that factor in like 12 year olds and how much information we're potentially saving. Oh my yeah. gosh. So it's, it's a lot of just like, yeah. And it's like, I have experience in this stuff because I've released products in other countries and you have all these regulations that you have to follow. So yeah, I kind of just do whatever. <laughs> I mean, I feel like wrestling is this in general where it's like, oh, this person does this thing, but then they also do a million other things like Bryce is out booking my travel. I'm like, how do you have time for that? Like your job as a referee is already time consuming in terms of like what a show day looks like, getting ready for matches, talking to talent, going through hair and makeup. You have a million different things to worry about. But then once you hang up that hat, you pop on another one and then it's off to the races with that. My question is, I don't even know if you can answer this. Does your contract like... Uh, does it? So I have two contracts. I have the talent contract, which looks a lot like any other talent contract. And I make that paycheck through that. And then I have an office contract, which is a completely separate paycheck. Okay. So mine's the same actually, but I don't do as much as you. You do a lot more. Than I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm a workaholic. Uh, and I've, I've come to terms with that phrase. I'm just kind of like, yeah, no, I, I just work all the time. I like being busy. I like doing things. And I, I've always been a type of person that I want to help the companies that employ me. And especially being a part of AEW since the beginning, my big thing was I want to do whatever I can to help this company be successful because this is a pretty dope job. I want to have it forever if I can. 
So I know that there's more than just the television product we have on TV in order to make a company successful. So whatever I can do to help. Okay, I've got several follow-ups. First one, going back to the video game. So we've all been kind of waiting with bated breath. We hear about the video game. I know um, Kenny Omega had just recently been talking as well about the video game and what the rating is. Can you break down what the rating is and how that affects things in terms of its release and the level of goriness, all of those things? And is my husband at fault for that? (laughs) (laughs) Only slightly. Um, So I will will clarify, I'm not actually working on Fight Forever, the console game. I'm working on other stuff. Fight Forever is sort of Kenny's baby. So he's been doing that. I've been on other stuff the whole time. But everyone assumes I'm working on it because I'm the video game person. But to answer your question about ratings, so there's this company in games called the ESRB, the Electronic Software Ratings Board, and they have a rating that they assign to every single game. And there's generally different levels like E for everyone and T for teen and M for mature. So you end up hearing stories about like Grand Theft Auto is mature and then they had all these other things in it that come to light. So how your game is rated affects how it will do in other markets. Very traditional example is Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat had a lot of blood when it first came out, and that upset a lot of people, specifically in the UK, because Germany had a lot of uh, restrictions on how much blood you could have in a game. So they ended up changing the color of the blood to blue, and it just like blue sweat, uh, so they could get around sort of the ratings and the restrictions there. So a lot of ratings is similar to how it works on TV. So if you have any sort of swearing, that changes the rating. If you have any sort of gore, that changes the rating. Is the violence actual violence or is it comic violence? Like, is it a, is, is there shooting in the game? There's all these different things that play into what the rating of your game is. And it just affects so much from there. It would be crazy to be on the board for something like that, kind of deciding what to go, what sucks. I'm sure a lot of stuff falls in like a bit of a gray area in terms of like really putting it through that sieve and figuring it all out. Okay. Heels. Um, how did the concept of heels come together. And I think, yeah, I just want to talk more about the female relationships that exist both in wrestling, like in the locker room, but also just with fans. But let's just start with the the origin story of putting heels together. So heels was originally created by Brandy Rhodes and it came out during the pandemic, which was a really, I mean, for all of us, it was a time where we needed to make connections because we weren't physically in the same space. So it was sort of this idea of we're going to have monthly Zoom sessions where the community gets on and we present content that is not accessible, but AEW related. So we would have talent on to do Q&As. We would bring uh, external partners that were adjacent to AEW, like we've had uh, this one group, Self Care is for Everyone. They do a lot for mental health. So we've brought them on a couple of times to talk about like managing your self-care and how you talk to yourself and positivity and all those sort of things. So when Brandy left, there was sort of a whole of who is taking this over. And Leva was already doing a lot of the work behind the scenes and she was helping Brandy with stuff. And I was starting to get more involved with heels. So it sort of became without even discussing it, it's like, okay, well, Aubrey and Leva are taking it over. And there was so much work to do that we're like, how can we build a larger sort of leadership group to take this on. So we've incorporated Amanda Huber, who does a lot of work with community, since there's a lot of overlap with what Heels does versus what community does, and Vicky Guerrero, because she's always cared about this kind of stuff. So the four of us are sort of running this group of what are our monthly events? 
Uh, we have a website where we're managing a community. We have in-person events at every pay-per-view. We're trying to create unique content for them. So it's a lot like what you would see with uh, someone's individual Patreon, where someone's paying a subscription to get this content that's unique and behind the scenes. But instead, we're building this community behind it. So every day, like I log in and there's just tons of posts of people sharing the things that are happening with their life, things that are that they really enjoyed on Dynamite this week and all of that stuff. And it's just been super, super great to see it grow. And we've had crazy, crazy growth. I think we've grown like 300% in the last year. How do you find the conversation sort of changes when talking about wrestling in a community that is curated for women? What does that look like? I think a lot of the conversations come down to who people are watching wrestling with. Like, Women are primarily the caregivers in their homes, so their kids are getting into wrestling. They're enjoying wrestling with their spouses or partners. I see a trend of people looking at the characters or people looking at the growth. Like there's a huge support for a women's division. Everyone's been looking at like how great Ruby's gotten in the last few months, how awesome Willow is. Like all of these women who came into AEW sort of later that are just propelling themselves and being awesome on TV. I find also that there's a lot of just positivity and inclusion. So if someone's having a bad day or whatever, they'll post about it. And then everyone else comes up like, no, 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 you're fine. You got this. You're a badass, whatever. And just a lot of affirmations that are really good to help build the community. And I see that a lot more in this space than I do on somewhere like Twitter. And I think part of that is just because it's curated and it's people who actually care about building the community because we're asking people to spend money. They obviously want the best out of it. So a lot of it is like the community is just managing itself and like, no, this is what we do here. We're very inclusive. We care about everybody. Like we have people who are trying to become pregnant and are running into uh, IVF issues. We have people who are in the process of transitioning. We have people who have kids who are in the process of transitioning. So it's like all of these things that are super unique that we go through day to day that we all need support with. But we all care about wrestling. Like that's sort of the thing that brings us together, but we don't shy away from the things that make us unique. I love that. That's really, really cool. Especially during times of all those things you rattle off where it's like, oh my God, I need to talk to somebody. These people have become my people. There's also, I'm sure, something kind of nice about having a little bit of that veil of anonymity while you're on there to speak freely, to have those conversations. That's, yeah, that's really, really cool that you guys have put that together. Um, okay, so you talk about what it's like in that heels community for women in that space. Now, for you, as the only female referee in AEW and the the career that you've been able to carve out for yourself, how did this all come about? Like I first met you at the May Young Classic when you were coming into ref and I was like trying to get notes and like all this stuff to put together for me and Beth calling those matches with Michael Cole. But where does wrestling come into your life? I mean, you talk about working in gaming and working in all these other different jobs. How did wrestling become the thing for you? So I never watched wrestling growing up. It was not a thing in my household. My dad said it was stupid and it was fake and we should never watch it. So I never grew up with that. I always grew up with video games. As you can probably tell, I was a straight-A student. <laughs> I've always sort of been that person. Uh, I was a ballerina. I was into all of these other things. So it was after I had graduated college. There was a WrestleMania, I think it was 27, where The Rock and Stone Cold were coming back. And all of my friends, who I have a lot of dude friends because of video games, they had all watched wrestling as kids and had fallen out of it. And this was the thing that got them back into it. 
oh, Rock and Stone Cold are coming back. We got to watch this thing. And so we treated it like the Super Bowl where everyone brings over something. We had like a box pool, like we're trying to figure all this out. And I literally have no idea what's happening. Like I'm Googling why the streak for The Undertaker is such an important thing. (laughs) Because I'm like, isn't it predetermined? Like why is a streak a big deal? (laughs) So there was a lot of things I didn't know. And I just sort of like got into it from there. And as you're watching every week, you start of understanding like the process and the storylines and you get attached to the characters. And that was right around the time that Brian Danielson was like on his ascension. So I really connected with him. And then as you're Googling Daniel Bryan, you're finding all of these like, oh, what's Ring of Honor? What is independent wrestling? Like, this is insane. There's this whole world that's opened up. So I started like traveling the country to watch wrestling. Oh, I my started- gosh. Yeah, I was I went deep into it. I go 100 percent in everything I do. There's a whole there's a trend here. So I got really, really into it. But I had never thought this was going to be something that I did. I was very content in my career. I was very content with ballet. I was content with everything else I was doing. And then we were at an indie show in Seattle and they had announced during like intermission that they were opening a school and we're going to start training. And my husband just looks at me and goes, I need to do this or I'm going to regret it the rest of my life. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, great. Well, you go do that. I'll be a supportive wife. I'll go to your shows. It'll be great. And that's literally what we did for a year and a half is that he started wrestling. He was doing his gimmick, all that kind of stuff. And right around the time that I turned 30, I left dance for a number of reasons. And I was looking for something else to fill that time. And I've always loved performing. And because I'm already going to this show every two weeks, I have relationships with these people backstage. They know me. So the head ref at this indie was like, have you ever thought about refing?" I'm like, no, why would I do that? That seems silly. Don't you just stand there and yell rules at people? He's like, you should try it. I think you'll like it. I tried it. Uh, I was terrible. I went in my car and cried after. I'm like, this is so dumb. I don't understand. Love What's a good car on? cry. There's nothing like a good car cry. <laughs> it's, it's so just thrilling. I love it. Um, but then I tried it again. Tried it a third time. Really liked it. Uh, they put me on a show two weeks later. Uh, By the end of the year, I was doing indies in Canada and Oregon. And then within the first year of me refing, I was doing tryouts at NXT. It's so funny to me how like one thing just leads to another, leads to another. And like now here you are like, it sounds very simplistic to say it like that, but like it always just blows my mind. I love hearing people's stories like that of just like you follow a path down one way. I mean, even for me getting into wrestling, like it wasn't the thing that I sought out. But all of a sudden I'm like in it and I'm like, wait, I love this. This is great. And you just like, yeah, you go all in, fully commit. And now here we are. Okay, so you're in it. Now you get to referee Brian Danielson matches. Oh, my God. How (laughs) wild. Okay, so you have seen your fair share of some like gnarly shit in the ring. Are there moments that you're going ooh, I don't know. Do I got to throw the X up? Like when you're in those moments and it's just so gruesome and there's so many different things happening, how do you kind of evaluate that during that moment when there's lights, there's cameras, people are yelling, there's so much shit going on. How do you focus on that? People are yelling in your ear because you're getting time cues and all this stuff. So there's like you're trying to just maintain this sense of calm and focus. And I think honestly, that's like, the big thing when it comes to being a ref on TV is having that calmness that goes with it. For instance, recently there was the the girls match where like Ruby's got that giant crimson mask, right? So in the middle of the match, she doesn't know how much she's bleeding. 
but she sees the blood dripping onto the mat and she's like, am I okay? I'm like, dude, you look so good right now. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to like pump her up. I'm like, just wipe it off your eyes. Don't wipe it off your face. It looks good. But there's like a certain level of blood where you have to start being concerned, right? And she wasn't there. But you also have Dr. Uh, Samson ringside. So he's there to sort of like, if you were to Are come you in- kind of gauging him? Like you're kind of giving him the eyes every once in a while to be like, are we cool? Yeah, because there's a lot of things that like I'll see that he won't see. So like if there's a dive to the outside opposite stage, like he may not actually see how that collision happens. So I give him a quick cue of no, 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 they're all okay. So he's watching intently. And then I have a way to communicate to him if anything were to like seriously go wrong. But there's an intensity and a gruesomeness that is okay. So like I've pulled barbed wire out of Eddie Kingston's body when they did that like barbed wire everywhere match. Been there, girlfriend. Oh, my God. Yeah. Where you're just like, okay, he literally can't move because he's barbed wired to a bore right now. And I have to like pull this out of him on TV. But you can't freak out. The moment you freak out, everyone else freaks out. So you have to remain that sense of calm in this chaos so that everyone can kind of stay cool and just focus on their thing, which is telling a story. And there are instances where people do get injured. It's really unfortunate, but we've seen it happen. Like even when people do moves thousands and thousands of times, sometimes it just doesn't go right. Gravity is a cruel bitch. But when those situations happen, you just kind of have to be on top of it and understand like someone's going through something right now. We need to just remain calm. We need to come in, figure out how bad it is. And if the match needs to stop, the match needs to stop. That's what they do in pro sports. Like when there's a concussion in football, you just stop the play. They go to commercial. And that's what we should be doing because every injury we have is important and is critical for us to figure out how bad it is and to address it as quickly as possible. What is your reaction to um, the criticism that you had received, I guess, uh, in terms of like becoming like a bigger character? We always think of refs being in the background. You're not really supposed to notice them. And that has not been what your career has been. What was your reaction to that initially when that started happening? I think when it first started happening, it was obviously something that I'm just like, oh, Twitter eventually is going to hate me because I'm a woman. So that's going to just happen. And I'm really good about not listening to criticism that doesn't matter. I listen to constructive criticism. And that's sort of where I've been focused. Like, if Jericho is putting me in a match and he's shoving me and then wants me to shove him back, I'm going to do it because it's ultimately not my decision. It's his decision because it's his story. And I'm there to help elevate the story that he's telling. So it's not like I tried to be a character. It was just sort of like they figured out that I have a very go-getter personality and I'm very no-nonsense. And as people picked me in matches, they're like, oh, well, if I shove her, I get a lot of heat for that. So let's do that. Cool. Great. And it just sort of happened naturally. But it was never something I intended It was just something that happened because the wrestlers asked me to do things in matches and I do them. Have there ever been moments of like other refs giving you shit of like, because you like you are your own character, like you really do have your own spotlight. Is there ever like any animosity amongst referees for that? I mean, I get none at AEW because all of the guys are freaking great. Like they're just all absolutely incredible. But I will hear some criticism online from other referees that are like on the indies and stuff. I'm like, dude, why are you criticizing people on TV? Don't you want a job? (laughs) It just doesn't like I just I don't focus on the criticism. I just focus on how silly people are. They're like, why are you criticizing something online? If you're then shooting me a DM about getting a job at AEW, 
Like, we're not going to do that. You just shit all over me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the moment has passed. Um, You are obviously a perfectionist. Do you stress yourself out? How do you like, how do you manage perfectionism? I manage it by knowing that I'm not always in control of everything. So it's hard to strive for perfection when you are not 100% the person that leads to the end goal. As I said, wrestlers are the ones who are telling the story. There's only so much I can do in a match. There's an ability where I can say, okay, well, my performance was really good there, but I could have done these things different. And I feel like you don't have complete control over that because so many other things are happening. Like if the match didn't necessarily go so well, I'm going to feel that. I don't really feel like I can hit perfection because the match wasn't perfect. I think perfection is unobtainable. And once I realized that, now I'm just focused on progress. That how can I be better? How can I improve what I'm doing? How can I be better at my craft? How can I make an impact at this company and in wrestling and be the best version of myself? Because perfection is just, if you try to chase that, you're just going to constantly be disappointed. Yeah, it's funny. I would always think, I don't know, I'm pretty like laid back. I don't think I'm that personality. And now I'm like, oh my God, bitch, you are. That is you. Like, I constantly am like, I try to do everything. I really try to do everything. And I try to do it to like the highest degree. And sometimes I'm just like, yeah, you got to like pick and choose those moments of like when you can just kind of like sit on your heels a little bit. No pun intended. All right, here we go. Guys, finally, Kenny Omega is here on the sessions. So I feel like this is obviously not for you. I'm sure you've not thought twice about it. Um, But for me, I'm like, when do I get Kenny on the podcast? Because it's a big interview. Oh, come on. But it is. It is funny because I feel like I kind of like put those ones off a little bit because I'm like, okay, how am I going to do this? What's it going to be? I'm trying not to overthink it. But anyways, thanks for being on the pod. How are you doing? Doing well. And I hope you're doing well also. And I hope that unconsciously, at least unconsciously or subconsciously, that you weren't worried about having me on because you knew I was a sure bet. Because, of course, all you need to do is ask. That's it. (laughs) Which is true. You were very cool that you're like, can you just like text me and we'll set it up? We don't need like a middleman. We don't need any bullshit. But I don't know. Like, how do you feel going into interviews? Do you feel like people are often trying to like really pick your brain or like people are trying to get a scoop from you? I feel do you kind of have your guard up a little bit going into interviews? It's the best and worst of both worlds. Sometimes you go into an interview and um They've got some very interesting questions that really make me think on the spot. And I'm very happy and glad to give the most thought provoking answer that I can give. And sometimes I really do feel like I go into things with people that have an ax to grind or with people that are simply looking for a headline. And um, I guess I used to be full of hot takes back in the day. (laughs) And, And now I feel like I'm just very boring. I just kind of keep my head down and I, I just bulldoze forward. I'm just trying to put my best foot forward in every situation. I'm not as interesting as I used to be. I can promise you that. I don't like feeling like I'm trying to get a gotcha moment or like, oh my God, he said this buzzy thing. Like, first of all, I work with you. I'm not trying to get you to throw anybody under the bus or say anything dumb. We're on the same team. Um, but yeah, it's I, it's funny. Like, I it, that's not what this show is. We're merely just hanging out. Could I go through your entire history of wrestling and go through all these great matches and moments that you've had? Yes, 
But we know those things. We've seen those things. I'm here to just hang out with you. I want to talk about the, the plant choice in the background. Well, it's, it's absolutely fake. So I, I can't, um, every, every plant in the house is fake because I have a, a kitty cat and I, I don't want him consuming anything that may be harmful to his stomach. And he's going to be roaming around. You might even see him later on if he gets a little froggy. He might jump up on the, on the table and, and, and say hello. I've never even really thought about that. We just acquired a cat right before Christmas time, and I've not thought about the plants that he can get into. He's a, he's a squirrely little guy, too. He's a little shithead. He'll probably be okay, but I don't want to come home after like a, a week of TV and just there's, you know, puddles everywhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't need that. Um, okay. So one of my favorite things that I've, I knew this, but I really realized it while I was like doing my little Kenny Omega deep dive. My mom, huge Kenny Omega fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what? So I, <laughs> What's the, I already knew what this. reason, if any, is there? Early hair, baby blue eyes. Is it one of them? I, I don't know what it's about, but I was FaceTiming with her earlier today. I'm like, I've got Kenny on the show today, and her face dropped. But it made me laugh as I was like, you know, I scroll through people's Instagram to kind of like get ready for the interview. It's like Carol McKay has liked this photo of Kenny. Oh my God. Let's talk about your demographic. The people that love Kenny Omega, my mom, of course, being one of them. What is a Kenny Omega fan like? It's, it's funny you say that because for the past like year and a bit, I've tried to be very unlikable. I've tried to be the scourge of AEW, you know, just a very cheesy, fun to hate bad guy. You know, if you liked me for that reason, that, that's great. But I, I wasn't trying to be likable by any sense of the word. Even in New Japan, like it was, it was always so shocking to me when I was doing, in my opinion, some of the, some of the work that, uh, I mean, some of the work that I was most proud of in my career. Yeah, like I would see the live houses and I would see the way that they'd react. I'd see the way that the company would react and they'd be very happy with how merchandise was moving, how ticket sales were moving, all that stuff. But to come here, um, you know, and of course the streaming service is going very well for New Japan, but still to come here and do the Odd Spot show in, in America and to see just how many wonderful fans are, are actually here and, and knew what I was doing and followed what I was doing, followed the stories. And if they couldn't understand a layer to it or something, they would find a way to have like a translated version uh, or a translated explanation of, of what it was that I was doing and why it was important and all the motivations behind the characters at play. Um, it was very cool. So I guess if I could say there's a demographic of Kenny Omega fan out there, well, I guess they have to be really cool <laughs> for one. Um, they're probably doing really well in life. You know, they probably like to motivate people and, and are good people all around. The creme to the creme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me about what those like layers and nuances are that happen in these storylines. And, you know, you can talk about your time in New Japan and then coming over to America and seeing the way that, especially with what we're doing in AEW, but how, like what works in American wrestling to your mind? Because you guys do have, there's so many nuances to everything you guys do. And that's something like me coming from the WWE background to now being here in AEW. And it's like, there's not just like one storyline on television that you see. There's stuff that lives on .com. There's stuff on BTE. Like there's so many different little nuggets to pick up from. Um, how is that, you think, like consumer-wise for fans? I mean, I think that kind of lends to maybe a, I don't want to say a truer fan. That's not the word, but they are really involved in everything that you're doing. Yeah, it becomes a more multifaceted fan. I think there's no right or wrong answer. And I do think sometimes simple is best. And sometimes I think maybe 
playing just your core audience is best. But also there are times when, uh, for example, when I would do a deep story, there is usually months or years and, and layers of real life history with a person that I'm working with. And I like to be able to have callbacks towards that. I like to be able to reference that. I like to take elements from that and ingredients and like toss it into the current day story just to spice it up a little. And um, for the people that understand that history or, or want to go back and investigate that history, all the data, all the, all the videotape, all there, all, all the records, they're, they're all there. Yeah, they're all there. And, and what's very cool too is and we're, we've been talking about, um, you know, fans and, and things like that. And how so how kind they can be and, and just how knowledgeable they are of everything that you do. There are fans that are so welcoming in our community that are like, okay, in case you don't understand just how deep this story is, here's a video that I've made just to help you understand. And it's so cool to see participation like that. And um, I mean, I remember being someone like that, you know, way back in the day when I wanted to teach someone something about what I was passionate about, whether it be a video game or like a TV series or something. And I would just lay it all out for them because I wanted them to enjoy it just as much as I was enjoying it. And I think that's one of the, the huge positives of kind of being just a different type of storyteller in wrestling. Because like you said, it's sometimes it isn't just what you get as a live house audience. Sometimes it isn't just what you see week to week on TV. Sometimes it's something that harkens back, you know, years and years, maybe even a decade. I mean, wrestling, I've always said this, I've said this for years and years and years, that wrestling can really be whatever you want it to be. So the type of storytelling that I usually try to employ when I'm telling a story goes deeper than face value. Because number one, I, I don't get too many opportunities to tell, you know, long and epic stories. So when I do, I want it to mean something or I want it to be fun or I want it to be interactive. So, um, starting this new thing in AEW where it's like, okay, it's a fresh thing from zero. We're an alternative. Some people know us, some people don't, but there are people that are excited to see this new product. So how do you go about introducing a new Epic storyline or a new storyline that people are going to want to tune in week to week to week, but also feel like there's something more there at the bone. That was one of the funny things um, and fun things that I was able to do with, with John, actually, I think it was one of my first big main stories. You know, he, Turned up out of nowhere at our first show. We got into it. People knew who he was. People somewhat knew who I was probably just due to the, you know, word of mouth and AW doing a good job kind of teaching our audience that, hey, Kenny's this guy from Japan and he did this thing with Jericho and it was pretty cool and he's here now. <laughs> you yeah. know? So it was sort of presented like at, at the very least, even if he didn't know who I was, I was at least put in a role to be presented as like, yeah, this guy should be a big deal. So when John attacks me, it's like, oh, wow, this guy that's a big deal is now attacking this other guy that we've been told is a big deal. So this is cool. But, you know, there's got to be more than that. And um, I loved how we were able to add elements of my Japanese history and then John going to Japan for the G1 and all that. It's like, hey, I'm going to go down to do what you do to learn how it is that you became you so I can beat you up even more. That That's the kind of stuff that I like. And I love that. If you follow us week to week, yeah, okay. John's giving me a DDT through a glass coffee table, and that's fun. Is it? Is it fun? <laughs> no, no. I actually, I went straight down and landed like right on one of like these like rods. It was the actual, it was too perfect of a placement. So this huge rod like right down the middle of my skull. Or was that like this like 
contusion mohawk. It was it was pretty funny. Oh my god! But oh, but it was nuts. I couldn't have landed any better. It was it was like I said, it was just too perfect of a spot to land. That's all it was. What were some of the shows and stuff that you really loved? If you were putting yourself back into like that early fan stage of like shows that you love that you would want to make a video to fully lay out some of those shows that you were really into that maybe kind of lend to who you are as a storyteller now. I try to look at what I do and how do I associate what I do with something from television or something from video games or some sort of some sort of entertainment medium that that can help me be more successful in telling a story. And when I kind of really sat down with myself and thought, like, how am I going to layer my stories? How am I going to pace them? I had to take a look at the time frame that I was given. And at this point in time, when I really kind of sat in the, in the think tank and thought, how am I going to do this for myself? And how am I going to take what I do to the, to the next level? Because at that point, I just felt like, okay, I'm naturally really athletic. I can do some stuff that other people can't do. I'm creative. And um, I've been lucky enough to get to this point just based off of that. And that's great, but that only takes you so far. And at the end of the day, people do want more to chew on than just, hey, this guy's a great athlete. It's got to be more than that every time. So I was getting matches around 18 minutes to 25-ish. And then for the big ones, you know, that's anywhere from 30 to 50 to an hour. But the main ones are like 20-ish. So I thought, what could I, how can I study for this? How can I improve myself? How can, what, what can I take nods from anything around me? And um, I began to study weekly cartoons, specifically um, superhero cartoons. Because an episode lasts about 21 minutes long. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. The hero gets put into to peril at some point. And every week, there's probably a new villain featured. And every week, for example, Batman cannot fight the Joker every week. It's not always going to be that serious. There's not always going to be that, oh my goodness, the world may end moment. Sometimes he has to fight the Riddler. Sometimes he has to fight um, you know, Mr. Freeze or Clayface. How do you make all those instances, how do you make... All of those altercations, interesting. How do you make them feel like they mean something? And how do you make them different from one another? And sometimes you can elicit other emotions, even though, you know, you are supposed to be taken, taken as this incredible superhero, someone that's larger than life, someone who is supposed to be one of the best at doing what you do. So I had found that um, specifically Batman cartoons, Justice League, yeah, they really helped a lot. It's funny being able to tap into things because I think some people just assume like, oh, you're going to go back and watch a bunch of old wrestling matches and you're going to pull X, Y, and Z. But it is really fun, I think, to be able to tap into that other side of your brain and just like look outside and beyond our world to bring other characteristics in, other things to kind of focus on. That's really neat. That's also another reason why I would try to study other forms of wrestling, like worldly styles. Because it's always like, yeah, you're in America now, so this is the style that we like, we like to do. And um, sure, it's North American wrestling style or, or American TV style. It's fun. It's great. It's what I grew up on. It's what a lot of people grew up on. Wrestling as an art has kind of been prevalent in so many countries in the world. So who's to say that something that you take from Lucha Libre can't work? Who's to say something that you can learn from England or Japan or any other country would not work in American television? You, you don't know. Sometimes you just 
You just got to take from it, learn from it and try it. Well, it's also sort of, I guess, like training the audience, so to speak, to like appreciate and enjoy another style. I think we've all been kind of programmed to a degree of like what a wrestling match looks like. And now to take people outside of that while people are craving something a little bit different, people are craving to, uh, I think, to kind of open their minds up to something. It's cool that you're given that platform to actually go out there and execute that week after week. That part is is very rewarding. It's nice to have you know a, a degree of trust among your peers and you know in the in the hierarchy of AEW to allow um, people like me to be able to tell our version of stories. And hey, sometimes it it doesn't work out the way that you picture it. What's an instance of something not working out the way that you thought that it was going to? The big one that always comes to mind, the forefront of my brain, is of course the uh, the barbed wire death match, the exploding barbed wire death match. Great match. Great match, by the way. I was so proud of the match. I was so worried about the match because I'm not really a hardcore guy. I'm like a guy that's scared of needles. I'm like a guy that's scared of getting caught. <laughs> yeah. When I'm in the in the heat of the moment, you know, I, 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 things happen. So I, I just deal with it. When I'm getting thrown on the barbed wire and things like that, in the heat of the moment, sure, I can handle it. But no, going into a match knowing that this might happen and this might happen and this might happen. And I'm thinking worst case scenarios like, wow, I could catch on fire. I could sear you know, my face off or whatever. I could get completely shredded by barbed wire if I get completely tangled in it. Like I was scared of stuff like that. But the one thing that I never thought would happen and I should have considered it was what if all this stuff that they've prepared, that they have done rehearsals for, that I know worked in rehearsals, what if for some reason on the day of that doesn't work? It never popped into my mind. The, that feeling, that thought, you just think that the stuff that you can't control is going to be there for you. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. You're worried about your match. You're worried about your moments, not the stuff out of your control. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what I'm trying to worry about, like, what, what, what can I do to control the unknown? The thing I can't control, any sort of technical aspect of the match i can't do that so i'm just trusting that all these people that have the know-how and that have been tasked to do this can pull it off what was going through your mind during that moment when you're like waiting 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 like what happens as like a performer in that moment of like oh shit i was giving the entire situation the benefit of the doubt because it was a super windy day it was a very windy day, and the way that the wind traveled through that kind of half-open-air arena, I thought, maybe this place has been so wind-tunneled up that something is, had caused this to, to not fire the way that it should. I was kind of hoping that maybe that's what it was, <laughs> but it was just like, when I heard the real reason, where it was like the boss who was not there from four rehearsals had then showed up to the actual real-life show, and he had said, I've got a way to make this look even better. And that was his idea. I was like, wait, you decided on the spot, but you didn't know the idea. You didn't see the rehearsal. And that's, that's the, the direction he decided to go in. And yes, there were misfires within his new idea that he decided, but I wish we just would have done what we practiced. How do you react in a moment like that when things don't go as planned? What do you do when you walk to the back? Are you mad? Are you kind of trying to understand it? 
How do you function in that moment? Wow. <laughs> Did you get pissed? You look like you got pissed. I, I remember walking to the back and I didn't want to show any sort of emotion one way or another. Whatever it was that I was going to do, I was just going to do it away from people, maybe in front of the bucks, you know, maybe in front of people that have seen me my worst before. I was going to do it in front of them. And then I was going to come back out and be like, oh, wasn't that great, everyone? You know, (laughs) so I was I remember being on my way to the back and I saw Jerry. He kind of like sprinted up beside me and he's like, Kenny, don't do it, man. He's like, I know you're pissed off, but don't do it. I'm like, Jerry says, I don't even know what I'm going to do. So I just feel like crying, man. <laughs> so he's like, he's like, no, says, it's okay. It's okay. It's nothing you did wrong. Nothing you did wrong. I'm pissed off too, but hopefully you don't blame anyone involved in the match. I'm like, no, I don't. So that was kind of the most upsetting part is at that moment. It's like, I don't know who to blame. I don't know who's the fault. I just feel so terrible for, for like, for John, for Eddie. I even felt sorry for myself. I was like, man, boy, do we look like sorry saps. It was, it was nice to just sort of, as best as I could, scrub the, the finish and just think about, okay, how did we, how did our day's work look aside from that one technical flub? I was like, you know what? I really liked it. I really did. And it sucks that that last part is what's going to stick in everyone's mind. But I mean, it just reinforces that everything that we do as performers, as artists, like, don't, don't ever say, hey, Kenny, you had this incredible match. Kenny, you had the greatest match of all time. Let's say you really think that. I was just a part of it. I had an opponent. I had a great crowd. I had a great ring. I had probably a good entrance. My, 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 my opponent had a good entrance. The referee was probably there selling the counts. Like, it's, it's such a team effort. And, and if one of those things goes sideways, then kind of the whole experience gets... It, it suffers as a result of it. I don't know if I'm too close to it because I was like there watching it, obviously like talking to John about it. But like, I don't know. My takeaway from that match was like, you guys had a great match. Sometimes shit just doesn't work. And that just is what it is. And like you said, it's out of your hands. And to kind of dwell on that or think that that's the big takeaway. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people, maybe that was the takeaway. But for me, I, I just thought the whole match in general was great. And it was just at the end was like, oh, shit. But it happens. Yeah, we were able to pivot away from it and kind of make it into something else, which was in its own right ridiculous. Like, hey, I I wanted you to think that you're going to get blown up and burned alive, but I'm not a murderer. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, like I, if I blew some up for real, that, that's not good. No, that's messed up. You're going to jail. Um, does that make you shy away from wanting to ever do a match like that again? It made me want to rely on as little people as possible moving forward. And I remember, too, that that was always my my thought process going into sports, even throughout high school. I was really good at ice hockey. I loved ice hockey. But what did I play? I was a goaltender. I have a lot of follow-ups on this. When I found out that you were a goaltender, I was like, hold the phone. Because goalies are kind of always the wacko on the team a little bit, right? You guys kind of have that reputation. You're like the drummer of a band. You're always just a little left to center. That's what everyone keeps telling me. I'd always thought, man, I, I'm just the intelligent one of, of, of all you people. No, but I guess I was the whack job. Because really, you're getting, you're getting these hard pieces of small rubber being fired at you at, I mean, depends on your level. But what level were you playing? When, what did you play till? So I played until the junior level. 
So yeah, junior level. And then of course, um, when we had to make the decision, the big final decision of where my life is going to be headed, whether I focus completely on scholastics, whether I go on a, on a scholarship for hockey and, and take my schooling, or whether I just do the least smart thing of all time, and that's put all my chips into professional wrestling. We know how it went, and I'm very lucky that it did go the way that it went. I want to play devil's advocate here. What if you did go the other way? How close were you to kind of following through on that? I mean, for any kid growing up in Canada, we all want to, I wanted to play in the NHL. I wanted to be Manon Rayom, like sign a girl up. You want to talk goaltenders. I was not a goaltender. I mean, I even have like family videos back in the day where it's like, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, well, it's tough, but it's either I'm going to be either a Ninja Turtle or uh, I'll be a professional hockey player. So I'm not sure. It's going to be one of those. And yeah, I remember it was that, that's always what the goal was. And, you know, when I started playing, I, I loved it. It was fun. I had a late start because everyone at that time anyway, people that were playing hockey, they would start. You start at, at like three, four years old. Yes, oh, three, yeah. four years old. So finally, when it was time when I decided, hey, I want to do it. I want to try this. I was already 10, possibly close to 11. So all these kids are skating so well and I can't even skate backwards yet. I mean, I can kind of skate sort of, but not really. So to go out with, at that time, it was, must've been 40 something pounds of, of goalie equipment. Oh my God. So bulky. Good God. The, the gear was still pretty heavy and to still not really be able to skate well, to not really have the strength in my wrists and stuff to control my stick just no good lateral movement, all that, all those things, but to try out for the highest level and then to try at the next level and then to try at the next level and then kind of like, okay, everyone that's left over, they play in this league. Um, here I am playing house league. And um, it was a great experience to see where I was at, to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm winning all these track meets. I feel like athletically I'm very gifted. Why is it that I couldn't pick this up immediately? Were you not playing net at this point? I was. It was my first everything. It was like I just decided to play, and my father was really good at hockey. He was he was very good, and he, he played uh, goal as well. So yeah, I I had my first my first year in the absolute bottom of the barrel leagues. Went to summer hockey as well, and then the next year I was already in the Premier League and playing in the All Star team. So it was like it just. It caught, it caught on quick. I really felt like a natural at it. But then, and I guess even wrestling, you know, I'm a victim of this too. As it got more serious and more serious and more serious, it became less of a game and more of a business. And that is fine. But I mean, I played it for the love of the game. I played it because I, I love being in, in, I love being someone that my team could rely on. I love being able to contribute in that manner. And I love winning. I'm competitive. I just love winning. But I didn't care about the other stuff. I didn't care about the things that were time consuming, but had nothing to do with the game itself. Um, so I thought like, well, wrestling is kind of like the Wild West. You know, it feels like you can just control your own character. You do whatever you want. And of course, that's me not knowing anything about <laughs> what goes on backstage. Yeah. So I got kind of more into, into the wrestling from there. I was kind of doing odd jobs. I was setting up the ring at times for kids shows. I was doing ring announcing or I would be the Wait, DJ. Wait, you for did? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Every Wednesday, we would do like a community club show. And uh, there were times when there wasn't a ring announcer. So I would I would do the ring announcing. 
And um, sometimes there wasn't a DJ, so I would have to play people's entrance music, or I would just try to be—I would just try to be helpful, try to be helpful, try to be useful. I sort of found myself loving that process more than where I was at in ice hockey. My my path could have easily sort of veered over to that end of things when it came to like that fork in the road moment, but um, it didn't. And who knows? I mean. I guess it might it might have been cool if I played in the NHL. It might have been cool if I played for like you know the WHL or something. I, I don't I don't know how it would have went. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the week, enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there. And you can see us talking, having this interview, having a hangout. It's all up on there. Um, And that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there. And jump in the comment section, you know. Jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, We like filtering through them all reading about them maybe even like i don't know some constructive criticism if you had it we're all ears god did i open up a can of worms by saying that i don't know be nice be cool in there this has been the sessions